Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Okay, and welcome back to Behind the Knife's financial series. Today, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Adam Tanius. He's a vascular surgeon at MUSC in Charleston, South Carolina, and he has a passion for personal finance and education. And we're lucky enough to have him today discuss managing student debt. Adam, welcome to Behind the Knife. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So debt is always an uncomfortable topic. Uh, can you talk to our listeners about how common debt is for doctors and why it is important to have a game plan early on? Absolutely. So I think if you didn't come into medical school with debt, you're one of the the lucky few. Um, you know, about half of the people entering medical school will come in with pre-med debt. Um, this is all statistics I kind of looked up just specifically for this show as of this year. Um, but the average medical student will graduate with about an average of $250,000 of total student debt um, by the time they finish medical school. Um, and by average, I mean that greater than 70%. So between 75 and 90% of medical students will carry some form of educational debt. Um, and just for some more interesting statistics, uh, the average medical school graduate has about six times as much debt as that of the next graduate student. Um, and you know, about more than half of medical students use loans to pay for, uh, their medical school. So, uh, you know, debt has to be something that is on our mind and it, you know, your ability to handle debt and the idea of what that debt, is, what you're using it for and your strategy for it, I think is a conversation you have to be having before you even get into medical school. So you're absolutely correct. It's an uncomfortable topic, but it's something that we got to kind of break the walls down with because it is a reality. So Adam, we do have some medical students listening to the podcast or, you know, pre-med maybe even um, when they're going, let's just say they don't, didn't deal with loans too much mm-hmm. in undergrad, help me understand the kind of federal versus private loans. And like, when you have to, is it a mix of both that most people get? Do you, how, how does that work? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's, and it's a great jumping off point, right? So I think if you are, you know, the, Undergrads are lucky in a sense that they can get a lot of subsidized help when it comes to their educational debt. The problem becomes when you go for graduate student loans, that is less likely. And so subsidized is kind of what you kind of understand it to mean is that the government is helping you. And, you know, the most common way that they help is that they don't have you accrue interest while you are, you know, paying, you know, taking out that debt. Problem is that once you enter medical school, that is not an option. Most of graduate student loan debt is incurring interest and you are adding that interest to the capital or the, you know, the amount that you actually took out on an amortized basis so that it's happening consistently as you're going through medical school. Um, And so the question becomes, are you able as a medical student or as a resident, you know, where should you start? Should you be looking at private loans or should you be looking at federally funded loans? So federally funded loans, exactly like it sounds, they are from the US government. Um, And so when you're thinking about the differences between the two, the federal government usually will offer a lower interest rate 
um, on those loans. And they actually will have probably a lower borrowing limit. You know, it's set by the school. Essentially, the school will say, what is your financial need to complete medical school? And they will work with the federal loan servicer that you are getting your federal loan debt with. And that will sort of cap the amount of loans you're allowed to take from a federal loan servicer. Um, and then it's always based on your financial need, right? So you basically are filling out the forms. They find out what is actually in your bank accounts, how much you have, and then what you're able to pay on your own versus what the federal government has to fund. And that's what your, your need is. And that's the amount you're able to get. Um, and then the other benefit to the federal loans are that they're pretty flexible on the repayment plans. And I know we're going to talk about that later. On the flip side, private loans are from for-profit, usually institutions. And the problem with private loans is that they usually require a credit score. So, you know, if you're somebody like me, I kind of went straight through the educational process. And so my ability to develop a credit score, show a history of credit was pretty poor because I didn't really carry too much work or have too many expenses or credit cards or things to pay off to have like a true credit score by the time I was applying to medical school. And so if I went and tried to find a private loan, I would have not had a great credit score to offer that would have then given me a better interest rate. Now, the flip side on private loans is that they probably will allow you to have a higher borrowing limit. So you can borrow a little bit extra money so you're not living kind of you know, on the, the, the top of ramen meals, if you will, of the medical, the typical medical student, right. Or, you know, this used to be a bigger issue now in the era of COVID with not traveling for away rotations and for uh, interviews, I actually had to take out a second loan for interviews because interviews are such an accrued expense. Um, and I couldn't do that through the federal government. I had to take out a different loan. It was almost a $15,000 expense. And so, you know, on a private loan, you can actually work that in, whereas a federal loan, that's not a need that they may see. So again, and it's not based on financial need. You basically get to ask for how much money and then they're going to set the interest rate. But again, remember those interest rates are a little bit higher on private loans. And at the end of it, the repayment plans on private loans are less flexible. Um, again, these are for-profit institutions. They want their money back. So those are the two sides of the coin if that, you know, if that helps. Yeah, that was a fantastic breakdown. Okay, so let's jump ahead. You kind of got your mix or, you know, uh, of loans and, and got through medical school and you've matched your kind of top residency. How do you decide on how much to pay back during residency? Can you pay nothing? Um, does it matter if it's federal versus private? And how does this impact you in the long run? Yeah, Um Hands down, I'm just going to start. I'm just going to start by, you know, with a blanket statement. And again, this is my personal opinion. So there's a lot of people that may think a little bit differently, but just having been a decade into this whole, um, you know, being post medical school, my thoughts, I think the second you get out of medical school, you just want to start making payments. And that's for a lot of different reasons. One, whatever you can pay off in interest or what have you. So it doesn't get compounded into your capital, the thing they're calculating your interest payment from the new capital because you're not making any payments. Any little bit you can do helps. Additionally, this might be on a different conversation you're having on this podcast, but I think it establishes the most crucial fundamental habit of medical students that are incurring debt which is creating a budget. So the second you create a budget to understand that you're going to have a monthly payment going to these loans, you're creating that habit. And so I think that that's probably the most important reason to be contributing. Again, remember when you're a resident, your ability to contribute to your payments are, is going to be negligible because you're just 
barely making enough, you're living paycheck to paycheck as a resident. Um, but the beauty is that if you're in a forgiveness program or what have you, that's income-based, they take that into account. So my payments for my public forgiveness loans when I was, and I started that this literally day one of residency, I believe my first months for a payment for my, basically my first year through my sixth year of, um, of training were between the range of 250 and $450. So it's a very manageable payment. And it just a shows that you are making good on the fact that you are making those payments. And two, I always had it worked into my budget that there would be a medical student debt payment as part of my monthly budget. So I think that it's, it, you got to start making those payments from day one. And a lot of the resources I found online echo that sentiment. Okay. And excuse my ignorance. I just have kind of two questions on that. Um, when you're making with that federal loan, um, based on your income, did that, not accrue further interest if you made that amount of payment or what was, how did they decide that amount and what, how did that impact your principal and interest? Yeah. Phenomenal question. And so that amount that you pay is simply based on your income return, income tax returns. So every year you submit your income tax returns versus a copy of two paychecks from two months prior, depending on how you're deciding, you know, and there's a little bit of I don't want to say gaming the system, but I can get into that in a second because there are very specific ways you should game the system. Once you get into maybe people who are doing research years and moonlighting, I think that is a little, it's a very key topic that I I will hit on a, a little bit later, I promise. But essentially to answer your question, you are submitting a tax return. And so that first year, when you get out of medical school, you want to start making payments ASAP because you have no income for that year. So when you submit your income tax return, they're going to generate you a payment that is probably $0, which is what I had. And so you are getting credit towards payments with making a $0 payment. And so they're counting. And then the next year, when you have a year's worth of income as a resident, that'll change. And so my first year was $0 after a six month forbearance period. And I know we're going to talk about that in a second. But then my second year, when I had an income return uh, from filing taxes, I then went up to like $250 a month. And so the year after, as your resident salary increases and your income tax return increases just because of the sheer, just the math of it, that numbers kind of slowly went up and up. But the max that I hit in my residency was $460 a month. And that was making a Boston salary, which was, I think, 70,000 a year as a resident. Again, this is just numbers that you can find online for my residency program. But Again, I think that that is a very manageable payment to make, especially if it's actually contributing to your ability to pay it off. And then that number that we just talked about does not, that will subtract from your total interest. And then, but again, as you can imagine, it's a fairly negligible number on your total interest that you owe. But again, it's, you know, it is taking, it is chipping away at it as little as possible. But I think the more important thing is that and we'll talk about the public loan service forgiveness, but if you decide to do that, you should do that from day one. And every single one of those payments, even those $0 payments are counting towards that forgiveness number, which I think is the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. This is another silly question. Do you actually have to like go click pay $0 for that $0 payment to count? Yes, you have to assign. Uh, so like on, on like currently, 
public loan forgiveness is like changing its service provider. But with the previous service provider, I had to go in, I had to assign uh, an account that automatically debted and I had to set an, an amount. And I actually got on the phone with these people and I called them about every other month and they probably know me by first name, but I take the name of the person I am speaking with. They have an employee ID, which I record. I record the date that I talked to them and I record exactly what was discussed there and what the outcome of that conversation was because at the end of the day, you want a paper trail, right? You want to prove. And the good thing about the current audience that's listening is that as medical trainees, surgeons, what have you, we are good at this stuff, right? I mean, we can research things, we can write down numbers, we can remember things like, and we just are, you know, if you have the chance to be forgiven, and I'm going to tell you my number, which is currently $570,000, if I have the chance to be forgiven that amount of money, I promise you, I will take every note into every, make every call I have to. I was actually on the phone with them for two hours today. Um, but yes, you go in and you assign your debit account or your bank account number, you assign the amount and you just put on automatic payment. And I actually set it to one cent because I was nervous that a $0, like, you know, somewhere down the line, you know, I was like, my future self is going to be pissed if I missed out on 12 payments because I didn't put one cent in. So I changed it to one cent, but yes, those count. Cool. Um, So we kind of talked about the difference between federal and private loans. Um, Can we just touch base on refinancing? Um, Is this a good idea? Are there things to be careful with, with this? And, and, a tag on question to that. Is it going to be harder to refinance with the Fed raising interest rates and things like that, or at least getting a good rate? Does that impact this? Yeah. Uh, amazing question. And so what I will say is um, the two things you have to realize, a lot of people use a, a little bit of interchangeable language when it comes to refinancing and consolidation. And so I'm just going to explain those two topics. And so you have to think about them as kind of strategies. And so con- consolidation is a strategic move where you bundle all different loans you have taken out from different providers into a single payment through a single provider. And so if you have private loans, if you have a mixture of private and federal, if you have federal loans, but from different service providers, you're consolidating all that debt into a single provider. And my recommendation is that anybody that is, and again, you know, you have to think about the time value of your money and the time you're going to be putting in. And this is a surgical podcast. And so hope, you know, my hope as a surgeon is that everybody listening goes into surgery, whatever their field of choice may be um, plug for vascular just because of, you know, me being a vascular surgeon. But what I will say is that you are automatically signing yourself up for a minimum of five years of making resident salary, which is half the amount of time of public loan service forgiveness, which we'll get into. Um, and so if you're going to do that, you should consolidate everything into a federal loan when you start. And that way you have the opportunity to be forgiven. Um, and then you can make a decision once one servicer has everything, then all of your loans can kind of travel as a bundle together wherever you go. Now, the question you asked about was refinancing and refinancing is a strategy to do if you're trying to save money and it replaces one or more existing loan with a new private loan with a ideally lower interest rate. And so what you have to do the math on and 
this isn't, I'm not asking you to get out an Excel spreadsheet and sort of type in numbers, although, you know, you can, there's a lot of calculators online that just, you just type in, how do I calculate my, in my student loan debt repayment? And it'll ask you for a couple numbers and it'll tell you what you could owe with one interest rate versus another over however long, but just to give you some numbers, and this is as of 2021, 2022, Currently, the interest rate for graduate loans is between five and a half and 6.3%. The interest rate on private loans can range anywhere from one to 13%, depending on how good your credit score is. So you are trying to figure out the math of, can I refinance for a lower interest rate than what I'm getting with the federal loans, knowing that if I go with a private loan, I'm going to be paying that off on my own. And I'm going to pay off every penny of that. Whereas a federal loan, if you, let's say that a federal loan, you get at six and a half percent, but some bank is offering you a 3% interest rate. So you're saving yourself half the interest. If you go with a private loan, you're still telling yourself you're going to pay off all that money on a private loan, as opposed to with a federal loan. Yes, it may be a higher interest rate, but your objective is to not pay back all the money because you're hoping to get it forgiven. And so that's the game. That's the equation you have to work out with yourself. Great, great. So let's go dive into it. The hottest topic in uh, when we talk about student loans, the PSLF or the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. What is this? Who qualifies? And what are some pitfalls to avoid? Yeah, absolutely. So public loan service forgiveness, I can't um, I can't push it hard enough. I, I think that it's it's something that every surgical trainee who has student debt should at least start off with um, unless, you know, there are some really esoteric reasons why you shouldn't um, you know, and some of those reasons, and I, and I'll just say them because I, I I've heard of them and I think they're worth mentioning. Some people will have situations where their families will take out the loan for them and charge them an interest rate or charge them no interest rate to pay back their medical student debt. Or you can get certain grants, subsidies from, you know, if you're from foreign countries or um, different scholarships. So those are really like little esoteric situations. But if you are sort of your, I've gone through college, I've gone through medical school, I just matched into a surgical residency program, and I may be taking a year or two off for research, I cannot stress highly enough, you need to be in public loan service forgiveness, at least through your training, and then make a decision afterwards. Um, And so public loan forgiveness is a program through the government where if a trainee works full-time for a government agency or nonprofit organization, which is essentially, I think, almost all of the surgical training programs, which are affiliated with at least a medical school or a university, or at least have a nonprofit hospital within their system. And those are three big categories you need to realize, especially if you're planning where to match for residency, um, because there are some private hospitals that do residency programs where that will not qualify. And so you, you have to know about that before you match, because that could greatly affect your ability to, you know, pay into this public loan forgiveness. It's not that you can't do it down the road after you finish training, but it won't let you take advantage of this at your time where you're making the least amount of money. And that should be the goal. Um, And we'll get to that in a second. But again, you're working full-time for a government agency or any hospital as part of the system that has a nonprofit designation. You have 
direct loans or have consolidated all your loans into a federal loan program to qualify and that you repay your loans on an income-driven repayment plan of which there are currently four, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And you have to make 120 qualifying payments. So what that boils down to is you have to make 10 years worth of payments while working for a nonprofit designated organization or government entity, um, and you're working full-time for them, which in my mind, the last time I looked is about 90% of all general surgery, vascular, you know, surgical trainees across the country, right? So just by going into a surgical training program, you automatically almost qualify for this. And so again, if you are doing a surgical training program and, you know, it took me eight years to finish everything that I did in surgical training. So they give you a forbearance, which is a period where you don't have to pay, make payments and you're not accruing interest in that period. So I had a six month forbearance period. And then from then on out, I've been making payments. The first six months after that forbearance were one cent payments. And then after that, every year was, you know, 250, 270, whatever it worked out to. And I am now currently eight and a half years in to making payments into this. And I have a year and a half left of payments. And if you look at the math of it, I was making payments at a rate that I was paying in the hundreds while I was a resident. And now as an attending and you're making attending salary, remember the first year of making attending salary, you're still on the income tax return from a resident salary. So even though I'm making attending salary, I'm still making qualifying payments under that dollar amount that was when I was a trainee. Next year, it'll be a little bit different because I'll file my tax return this year, I'll submit the payments and that'll change. But then I only have one or two years left of making payments. And by the way, those payments get capped. And so even though I'm making attending salary right now, it can only hit a maximum number of dollars. And so I'll only have, for me, a year and a half. But the average person that does a five to six year residency program will have about three to four years of making the cap payment as an attending. And I promise you, no matter how you slice the math, if you have more than one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt, there is no way that you are not going to come out a winner being in the public loan service forgiveness program. The only caveat is that you have to work for a hospital that has a nonprofit designation. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I think yeah. those are all really critical points to the program. Absolutely, no, I feel like I'm uh, ready to apply for it now. Um, so, thank you for that awesome overview. So. Let's talk uh, some recent news, or I guess not really recent anymore. Um, just for references, uh, this podcast will be up for many years to come, but we we're recording this in late uh, June of 2022. And ever since COVID, there has been a federal forbearance of, of loans. Um, so what does this mean? How long will it last? How does this affect PSLF? And do you think there will be a nationwide loan forgiveness of any type? Amazing question. Um, and I think, you know, it's great to just give everybody who's listening to this context. And I think it's actually a really important point. One of the other benefits that I didn't mention about being in a federally funded or federally driven payment program is that, you know, not that there was any silver lining to COVID, but at the end of the day, because of what happened, the federal government has taken a little bit of a I don't want to say a blind eye, but they're helping a lot of trainees right now because what they're doing is they're, they've issued a forbearance, which has been going on, if I'm not mistaken, for I think almost we're almost approaching the two-year time mark right now, where if you are working for a nonprofit, if you're in training, if you're any, if you're meeting all the criteria for PSLF, 
every month that you're working for now counts towards payments for the loan forgiveness while you are making $0 payments because they have the current, your loans are in forbearance and you're not accruing interest over this time. So there's no interest being compounded into your total principal of the loan that you've taken out for every month that you haven't paid off the loan. Additionally, for the last almost two years, that's 24 payments that have counted towards your 120 where $0 was coming out of your wallet. And that will never happen with a private loan. Now, not to say that you know this COVID situation is going to happen again for anybody that's in a federal loan or federal loan program, but you know I, I don't think any of us could have predicted COVID, and so there's no telling what could happen in the future. But the truth is that if you're in a federally funded program, situations like this where the federal government may put a pause or a forbearance while still letting your payments count, I think that is a possibility now. Who knows why that might happen, but it's very much a thing that could happen. And so, you know, for people who have been making payments and or at least keeping current on sending in the documentation you have to send in every year, you know, even though you were dealing with COVID, the the one thing you had going for you was that you were still counting towards that 120 payment total without having to suffer the hit to your wallet. And so is it possible? You know, there's been a lot of conversation. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of articles about at the end of the day, is the federal government just going to forgive all loans? You know, if you're asking my opinion, I don't think that's possible. Um, I think some form of forgiveness will happen in some dollar amount form. I don't know what that dollar amount is. Could be anywhere from $5,000 to maybe $50,000. I mean, you know, this we're all just, I'm just sort of throwing guesses out there. But what I will say is that the benefit of being in this federally funded program is that when the federal government decides to lend out a helping hand, people who are in the program are going to benefit from it. Whereas if you are in a private loan or payment structure, it does not matter what is going on unless the bank that issued your your loan decides to default and no bank recovers your debt or buys it out from them, you know, which is a pretty much a Hail Mary hope if you're in a private loan, but I promise you that private banks are going to want their money no matter what. So. Oh, fascinating. And so it doesn't matter if you're a trainee or an attending during this forbearance, is is that apply to everyone? Yeah. I mean, again, the, so the federally, these, the public loan service forgiveness, it does not matter where you are in your post education situation. You, if you are a resident, you are an attending, it doesn't take, the only thing that matters is that you are working full-time for a government entity or a nonprofit organization. And every payment you make toward counts towards that 120 total. The only difference is how much money you're paying. And that's again, based on your income tax return or based on how much money you submit from two paychecks proceeding. And so I'll bring this in just because I promised I would. Let's say, you know, and I'll, I'll just give my example. I was, I had a couple of research years, right? And during my research year, I decided to moonlight because I had the opportunity to, and I wanted to make some extra money so I could start doing stuff with it, invest, et cetera. Um, had to buy a wedding ring. That was expensive. Um, but my income tax return for those years was significantly higher because as I'm sure many listeners out there will know, you can make some decent money being a moonlighter. But when I went to resubmit for my paperwork for my loan repayments, they saw that and my loan numbers jumped up tremendously. But what I did was I submitted that, but then I also submitted two pay stubs 
from my last months of making resident salary and said, and basically what it is, is like, hey, listen, that was an aberrant tax return because of a certain situation. This is what I actually make on a month to month basis. Please have pity on me and understand that I can't make the payment that you think I can make um, because I'm not making a six figure salary every year. There's just a kind of a you know, the happenstance of being a research resident and moonlighting a few nights. Um, And what they do is they readjust your payment based on those pay stubs. And so always make sure if you're in the PSLF program that you are making sure they know you make as little as you actually make as a trainee. Um, And then when you are in your attendingship, your goal should be to decrease your taxable income as much as humanly possible. Um, And this is my one plug for the second you become an attending, really work with an accountant. You know, I think that as you're a trainee filing your own taxes, bootstrapping it totally the way they go, not really too much complicated situations there. But when you become an attending, your goal should be to minimize your taxable income because that's what drives your payment numbers on your loan repayment. And again, if you're in the public loan service forgiveness, you want to pay as little as humanly possible while making payments that count because you want to have as much forgiven as possible. And so the other caveat to that, or the other plug that I have is there are a lot of people out there right now, because this has become such a hot topic that are actually loan accountant specialists, and they will work with you for some amount of money between about 200 and $500. And they will basically take a look at every single one of the loans you have, take a look at everything you've done for a payment, and they will guide you about how to fill out the paperwork, what loan forgiveness program to apply to, what payment plan structure to go into. And they will basically take all the guesswork out and it will just sort of automate your loan repayment process. And I think that with everything you have going on during training, spending three to $500 to have an expert tell you what to do is so worth it. Absolutely. I would definitely sign up for that. Do you have any reputable ones, you know, or is that? Um, there was, there was one that I'm happy. I'll, if I, I'll share with you, it's actually, he has a pretty great website um, that has uh, just general information about uh, student loans. Um, and unfortunately I don't get any finding finders fee or referral fee for, for putting this out there, but I'll say that it was the one that was shown to me while I was a resident and I'll, I'll happily send you the link. And I think that the website has a lot of great information for people just looking for information on the public loan service forgiveness. Um, and he was a great help. Um, but again, it's not the only website. It's not the only person who does it. You can just Google it. You know, again, we're dealing with a very knowledgeable crowd here who knows how to Google things and knows how to find reputable um, resources online. Um, I would say, you know, as long as they are somebody that has a track record, maybe somebody that, you know, has used them, I would, you know, again, I think it's a very worthwhile expense to pay. So I'll happily share that link so it can be offered on, underneath the the podcast whenever it gets posted. Perfect. Um, okay. As we're wrapping up here, um, we have two last questions here. Uh, one question I want So, say you're not going uh, for PSLF uh, for whatever reason, what are there any other ways to get help with student debt? Great question. Um, yeah. So the first thing and first and foremost you should be doing is looking for any free federal aid, right? So there's the FAFSA form. Um, and then, you know, I have to give credit uh, to my wife. She was one of those people who went and found every esoteric grant scholarship that was offered when she was in 
uh, undergrad while she was in medical school and just found money. There are a lot of people and a lot of institutions and a lot of businesses that if you just check a few certain boxes and can apply for them and write an essay or two, send a whatever, they will give you money. And again, $25,000, $10,000, any little bit helps because you just have to realize that interest and the way that it compounds, especially at the interest rates that we are being asked to pay, will cause your total debt burden to double very quickly. So, you know, I just a, a quick number, a $200,000 debt can double in 10 years at current interest rates, even with regular payments, right? And so, you know, just gnawing away at that number in any way, shape or form, I think is amazing. And um, one of the things that I'm sure you know way more about and uh, could educate me on is that if you are, if you're so inclined, a lot of the armed services will offer a way to pay for medical school with time served. And so that is another amazing way to not only give back to your country, but also not have to incur educational debt. So those would be my plugs for how to, uh, you know, try to minimize your educational debt without having to do the, you know, federal loan forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, just as a plug for the military programs, you can even do it in a reserve or national guard status where you can work at your normal job and just, you know, serve the two weeks a year and, you know, potentially be deployed. It's, it's, it's no small thing, but um, they actually can have some pretty good payment or programs um, to help. And I think I was reading also, are there some rural states that offer some incentives? Yeah, uh, that is a, so uh, there are a lot of places in this country that are considered underserved or just, you know, places that do not get the influx of trainees and surgeons or physicians because they're maybe not as desirable as a place to live, or they're just very out there and separated, isolated from society. But the benefit to those places is that they will offer a loan repayment program when you are signing up for becoming an attending or, you know, during, not during residency, just because residencies are usually affiliated with bigger cities, institutions, what have you. But usually when you're coming out of residency, I've, I've known a few uh, colleagues who have gone and taken jobs in those remote rural areas. And they are, they basically get all of their loans assumed by their hospital or organization they go and work for as long as they work there for X number of years. And so, but again, I will say that if during training you had paid into the public loan service forgiveness, that still doesn't hurt you because again, you were paying as minimal as possible. You were keeping that option open. And then when you made the decision about where you wanted to go and work, you chose the route that was, oh, I'm going to go work in this rural area, make a lot of money, and they're going to forgive my loans all at once. That's great. You didn't. I don't think you lost anything by making a, an income-based payment that was basically the lowest payment you'll ever see, even if you were to go private. Now, the real question that I think that becomes sort of where the rubber meets the road and where the calculations matter is, okay, I am, you know, a medical student that you know, I'll just give you, if it's okay, I'll give you my numbers and kind of tell you the thought process that I had. Um, yeah. Cause I think this is probably where, you know, where our conversation will kind of was, is going to ultimately. Um, I was a medical student. I was an out of state student at a state school. And by the time I graduated medical school, just to make numbers easy, I basically had $400,000 of debt. And so then I went and did what I thought was going to be a five-year residency, added some research time, 
Um, and by the time I finished all of my residency and research time, I wound up with $560,000 worth of debt. And now the question was, do I take a super high paying private job in high in the six figures? You know, you can even go to remote areas as a vascular surgeon and make seven figures versus do I take the academic job and pay into this public loan service forgiveness? And how does that work? And so what I'll say is one your job has got to be something you really enjoy. And so I can't imagine being miserable in the job or being in a city that I didn't like just because I was trying to make some X number of dollars. And so I would just plug for taking the job that makes you happy because at the end of the day, as I'm sure you would agree, you know, you got to wake up, you got to take care of sick people. You got to do surgeries that are pretty crazy. You're going to be, you're on call. You're going to be away from your family. You might as well like what you do. You might as well like where you live. You might as well enjoy that aspect of it. Um, but what I will say is that if you have the opportunity to take a private job, that's higher paying versus an academic job, which is lower paying, the math just becomes, remember with a private job, you're going to have to pay back every single dollar of that. And it's usually over a 10 year period. So the math is pretty simple. How much do you owe? Divide that, add the interest payment to it, divide that by 10 years, divide that by 12 months in a year. And that's going to be the payment you're making every month for the next 10 years. When you get out of training, let's say you decide, you know, you were in PSLF, but then you finished training and you decide you want to go private. And so that's the amount you have to budget for every month. And so just take the number of dollars you're making as attending with that private salary and subtract that amount that you're going to pay towards your loans every month and see if that number makes sense versus going into a PSLF program where you are going to have to make between three and five years worth of payments that are capped. And so the cap for somebody with my amount of debt owed, which I would say is pretty high. I've heard of other people being higher, but I'm probably at the higher end of things. The cap of the payment that I have to make, even if I put a return with the most money I could make as an attending, uh, you know, junior attending as an academic vascular surgeon would be $3,000. And so that's how much I have to budget for in my monthly amount. So I can tell you that that's probably a third of what that private practice surgeon is going to have to pay back. So those are the numbers you have to think about. And that's where budgeting from day one of coming out of medical school, I think just, it helped me make the decision that I made. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You took it away. So, so something on $300,000 of debt is in the, you know, five digits payback per month, potentially. Is that- uh, if you're, if you're going to go into a private, right. So right, right, right. if you're going to go into a private repayment system, a $300,000 debt burden will be could be as high as a five digit, I would say it would be low fives, but could be as high as about a $10,000 a month repayment. You know, and again, I, I'm a, in the finance world, right? You know, if you have interest that's over four or 5%, my goal is to pay that off as fast as humanly possible, right? And so there's enough, I'm sure that it's been said on any, you know, budgeting lecture that comes up on this talk, when you get out of residency or fellowship, still live like a resident, still live like a fellow. Do not go and live that attending lifestyle until you've kicked this eight, 10% interest rate debt out of your life because you can't do both. Um, but I will say that, yes, a $300,000 debt burden for somebody who decides to do private loan repayments will be high four-digit, low five-digit repayment numbers just based on the math. Whereas if you go public loan service forgiveness with income-based repayments, 
will probably, I don't, I don't think I could hear of a amount owed that would supersede a $4,000 a month cap on that if you pick the right program within the PSLF. And so that's why I pick the program I'm in. I know that no matter what I make, if I get raises or what have you, my cap is about $3,000 a month, which I can very easily budget for with my attending salary and know that I only have to make about at maximum for me, about 24 months of that, you know, maybe someone who did a straight five-year general surgery program and didn't do any research and then has to make five years worth of payments, four years capped at $3,000, let's say, I still think comes out ahead of having to pay back the entirety of your debt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, Adam Tanius, thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise with us today. We really appreciate it. You clearly uh, have dove in deep in this and we're in, we're really happy to have your wisdom shared with our audience. So do you have any last thoughts for everyone? No, I just have to say it's, it's really a, an honor. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, as you can tell, this is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. I, I really like talking to all my juniors and making sure that they understand this. And I think, you know, as, as physicians, the, you know, we're, we talk about sort of the wellness education curriculum and, you know, trying to focus on that. Now, I think that finances has to really come to the forefront of what we talk about with trainees and medical students, because I'll tell you, when I was a medical student, the financial advisor at my school sat me down and said, you can't go into primary care. You owe too much. <laughs> You'll, and so I was like, oh, okay, great. Thanks for the heads up. And so I think that it just has to be a conversation, like you said, talking about debt's uncomfortable. But I think that, you know, as attendings, as faculty, we have to take our trainees under our wings and tell them, this is how much you're making right now. This is how much you're about to make. Make these smart decisions, learn from my mistakes or learn from my successes and really take care of this because at the end of the day, you know, this is how you're making a living and you're, most of us have to provide for other people in some way, shape or form. And so I think understanding how finances play into your day to day um, is, is crucial. And I think that, you know, podcasts like this are just paving the way for making sure the future generations make less mistakes than the people who are ahead of them. So I really appreciate it. Okay, Adam. So as we wrap up here, is there any way if people want to get to know you more, uh, learn more about you, are you on Twitter or how, how can they reach you? Yeah. Um, absolutely love. If anybody has any questions about this, this is the kind of stuff that, uh, makes me happy to talk about. So first and foremost, email, always a, an amazing way to get a hold of me. It's just my last name at musc.edu. So T-A-N-I-O-U-S at musc.edu. I am on Twitter. Um, I am on Instagram. I suck at Twitter. I'm a little bit better at Instagram. Please feel free to find me on either of those. Messing, I do check them. Um, I but I am not as good, uh, especially with that character limit at posting things or pictures. <laughs> I'm not great at that, but I, I promise you, if you connect with me on some medium, I promise to get back with you. Um, and I'm happy to talk to you about any aspect of personal finance, invest. I've, I've done it all. I come from a family of people in finance and I was the black sheep. And so I had to learn the language if I wanted to have conversations at dinner. And so I learned the language and just happy to have conversations with people. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening.
Until next time, dominate the day. 